Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, including a series of devastating attacks on Russian military capabilities in Crimea, and discuss the momentous news from the EU of a deal to send over $50 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine, and ask, is that really as impressive as one might first think? Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 1st of February, one year and 341 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley and Senior Foreign Reporter Roland Oliphant. I started with the latest news from Ukraine. It has been a very, very bad night for Russia in Crimea. First, Ukraine launched a massive missile barrage against four Russian military positions across Crimea last night. The head of Ukraine's air force praised what he called, quote, a cleansing of Crimea from the Russian presence. The Ukraine air force's involvement suggested British storm shadow missiles or French scout missiles fired from um, Ukrainian jets were used in the raid. Comes just a few hours after Ukrainian forces hit a radar station used by air defence systems in northwest Crimea. Explosions were reported in Sevastopol and the nearby military airfield of Belbek. That's just a few kilometres to the north. Footage of the strike at the Russian airbase shared on social media appeared to show a huge plume of smoke uh, rising into the sky. A second video showed another missile hitting or striking near the source of that smoke. Then Lieutenant General Mikhailo Olyshuk, the head of Ukraine's air force, said Ukrainian aviators will definitely return home to their native airfield. And now I thank everyone who joined the cleansing of Crimea from the Russian presence. Russian MOD claimed it had shot down 20 Ukrainian missiles over the Black Sea and the uh, occupied peninsula. Fragments from downed missiles were said to have crashed into a military unit in Lyubimovka. That's about a kilometre from the Belbek air base. In a statement, the Kremlin said there was no damage to any aviation equipment, while Crimea's Russian-installed governor said there'd been no casualties as a result of the strikes. We are not able to verify any of the claims. 
And then after that, very dramatic footage released just in the last couple of hours. You'll see it on social media and on our website. Released by the Ukrainian Military Intelligence Department. Purports to show the destruction of the Russian Tarantol-class missile corvette, the uh, Ivanovets, by a swarm of sea drones. So uncrewed surface vessels, however you want to call them, USVs, sea drones, maritime drones, whatever you like. But, you know, the kind of remote controlled naval vessels that, that have been de- developing in their innovation and capability over the last the last couple of years. Footage released by the Ukrainian Defense Ministry shows a number of sea drones approaching the even a vet somewhere in the Black Sea. There are suggestions it was on the waterway called uh, Lake Donislav, that's in the northwest of Crimea, about 100 kilometers as the crow flies northwest of uh, Sevastopol. Bullets could be seen striking the surface of the water around the drones as they approach before striking the ship's hull multiple times. Ukraine's defense intelligence said as a result of a number of direct strikes to the hull, the Russian vessel sustained critical damage, causing immobilization. It heaved aft and sank. So that even a vet launched in, uh, it's quite old, launched in 89, been updated since then. About 40 crew, we think, surface to surface and surface to air capabilities. Ombre Intelligence, a risk analysis firm, said the footage, which is taken from other drones, USVs, uncrewed surface vessels, using their thermal imaging cameras because it's all all done at night. They say they, that shows Ukraine used five to six drones to attack the vessel. The first two successful strikes struck the corvette's propulsion and steering. The subsequent three were aimed at the port side hull. A large number of projectile impacts coming from the corvette were seen hitting the water near the drones as they close in. After the attacks, I mean, a huge explosion. The Russian vessel starts to list, lists to uh, left, right, uh, starboard, I think. And then footage, later footage showed that the vessel was sinking with only the bow um, visible above the waterline at the end of the available footage. There were several large explosions taken from another, viewed from another craft throughout the footage. So, so very dramatic. And if it is as, as indicated, unlike in previous incidents where we've seen maritime drones used in the attack, this suggests that the thing has sunk. As in, I, I think it's I think it is continuous footage. I think the image of the bow sticking out of the water at the end has not been tacked on from anywhere else. So I think Roland, I'm going to turn to you in a sec. Just I'm going to take a pause from the updates, just Roland, to get your get your update here, your view on this. But we were chatting earlier on, and I think I think you're right. I think this is the first time we've seen these drones actually actually sink a vessel but Roland just I'm just going to take a pause there Roland what's your what's your view on this attack yeah I mean I think I think it's really interesting I mean partly because we've been talking about these drones for god I don't know 18 months or something so it's obviously not the first time we've seen them in action um the first time we really started to see stuff was back in 2022 um that's how long the war has been going on um and we saw these raids into into Sevastopol harbor and into Novorossiysk which is the russian navy base over on the other side of the of the black sea in russia proper um in krasnodar and like uh, those those raids they they seem to strike some kind of hits they definitely cause some damage but um we never saw anything that would that would lead us to say that um a vessel had definitely been sunk completely sunk put out of action so unless i'm misremembering um and i'm fairly sure well i can never be sure i'm not misremembering but i'm pretty sure at this stage stand to be corrected that this is the first time um in this war that these drone boats have sunk a ship not just damaged but sunk destroyed 
uh, in this case, a, a missile corvette. And that's it's interesting from two perspectives, Don. I mean, one was that I remember when the Ukrainians raided Sevastopol um, a year and a half ago, and I wrote a piece about the appearance of these drone boats. They're basically speed boats, I can't remember, like 10, 15 feet long with, a, with an explosive charge, radio-controlled. Um, H.I. Sutton, the maritime expert and um, former Royal Navy captain, whose name escapes me, but I'm sure you remember him, said, no, look, this is a bit of a turning point in warfare because, as a matter of fact, the American Navy, the Royal Navy, even I think the Chinese Navy, have been anticipating this for a very long time, that something was going to happen. And the British and American assumption was you were going to face this the first time you were going to see successful mass attacks by drone boats against shipping was going to be in the Persian Gulf, actually. I think the Iranians have developed this capability. But actually, it started happening there. I remember well, we, we had a little bit of, a, a bit of an armchair general kind of um, squabble about it because you pushed back a bit and you said, look, put it in context. This is obviously not the first time these things have been used. And we can go back to fire ships and Sir Francis Drake and so on and things that were experimented with in the Second World War. And you can talk about the suicide bomb attack on the USS Cole. Um, and, and they haven't... They haven't actually, as you pointed out, they haven't yet sunk ships. I think what you said at the time was, I grant you an inflection point in the evolution of, of naval warfare rather than, uh, than a turning point. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of going to throw it back at you, Dom, and say, well, look, I mean, they have sunk a ship now. And, I mean, it's, it, to me, it seems really interesting that, you know, you see these little things happen and you think, hmm, is, is, are we seeing warfare change? Are we seeing a, a turning point and so on? And, and, and very sensibly, as you reminded us, don't jump to conclusions. But it does seem to me that this event underlines that we really are seeing that happen. And the other thing that happens in the context of this war, of course, what it underlines is that the Russian Black Sea Fleet really is having a torrid time. And I just can't see them. I'm sure there's a way. I'm sure someone could work it out. But um, at the moment, you can't really see them regaining the initiative in the Black Sea. But yeah, no, Don. Please, please give me, give me, give me your thoughts on that, and whether you think that actually this uh, this incident does reach that threshold that, that that you were setting back then. Yeah, I vaguely remember that conversation. To be honest, I've written down inflection. Not sure I would have said that because I've made a note of it to uh, to Google it later on and see what it actually means. So not sure those would have been my actual words. But you know, I the the point. So H Sutton runs the Covert Shores website. Well worth a look. Very interesting point. You know, is this is this a new model of warfare? And yeah, I probably did say something like, unless and until you start bringing down these big capital ships, then it's not. I suppose what I would say is that, I mean, we saw the response here in, in previous attacks. There's not been much. Clearly, Russia has not had sentries out looking for these things and trying to bring them down. Some of them they have. Some of them we've seen. Helicopters shooting at the, at the drones. This time they they clearly did because you can see the rounds hitting the water as the drones move in. So they've upped their techniques there, but still they got through, which is kind of the whole point of a swarm air or or sea. And I presume the same will happen on land sooner or later. I guess what it means is is it does this mean that that um, warfare is now sort of open to everyone? We see what the Houthis are doing at the moment in the Red Sea, and if you can have this kind of effect against major capital ships of a big navy for very very little money in relative terms whether or not it opens up the party to many many more groups and so therefore i mean we saw the uss coal in in the year 2000 i think that was a there were three people on that that drove the boat into the side of the coal killed i think 20 u.s navy sailors but so this type of attack has been known of for some time but now it's getting 
cheaper and the technology is more readily available. I just wonder if it, rather than changing, and maybe that's what inflection means, huh, maybe not changing the whole mode of warfare, but just changing the, the kind of dynamic in terms of it's, it's a much more prevalent threat. There will be countermeasures that will eventually be brought brought in to, to do something against this and then the maritime drones will probably go subsurface and we might call those torpedoes, torpedo drones or something. But, you know, this is what will happen. But I just wonder if, if it just means many more groups, many more people are, are able to have a go at this. And when you start talking about, look at the British aircraft carriers, new aircraft carriers, £3 billion a, a, a piece, then, you know, you, you can have an effect against those kind of things with potentially for much, much less capital outlay but i mean this will rumble on on and on we'll see what the um what the outcome of this is and we'll get uh we will, the debate will continue about is this a new method of warfare a new mode of warfare or more of the same on a on a different scale but yeah do come back Ronan, with you with any final thoughts later any any other thoughts on that but i will now i will press on with the um with the updates um turning to the air so Ukraine was said to have attacked Russia with 11 drones overnight. Russia's defense ministry, sorry, get your get your bingo cards ready, everybody. Russia's defense ministry said they'd shot down 11 over a number of oblasts from west to east, the Kursk, Belgorod and Voronezh regions. They're the three Russian oblasts bordering Ukraine to the northwest, north and northeast of Kharkiv. Um, so in a statement, OK, pens ready. Uh, this night, an attempt by the Kyiv regime to commit a terrorist attack with aerial drones against sites on Russian territory, was foiled. Called bingo, if that's completed your card, everybody. And then on the other, going the other way, in a break with recent tempo of Russian military operations, Russia only launched four drones across Ukraine last night, much lower intensity than seen in recent months. Uh, air defences shot down two Shahids over the northeast Kharkiv region, the Ukrainian Air Force said. So only four fired, but... Only- they still managed to hit a hospital in Veliki Baluk, uh, caused injuries. That is about 60 k's east of Kharkiv and at the closest point, about 15 kilometres from the border. But, uh, yeah, was this, a, was this an aberration? Does this indicate that they're running low on stocks again? We shall see. But clearly the campaign over the winter, to try, and I think, Francis, you've got to comment on this a little bit later about Ukraine's energy supplies, but this idea that that the aerial bombardment against Ukraine's critical national infrastructure over winter might um, might have a, a huge effect on the civilian population doesn't seem to have happened. Okay, next Wagner. Remember Wagner? Now a number of their a number of Wagner Group divisions seem to have been incorporated into Russia's National Guard. This is coming from British MOD. In their defence intelligence update today, British MOD said the Roskvardia had incorporated the 15th, 16th and 17th assault detachments of the Prigozhin's old or old Prigozhin's mercenary force into the volunteer corps. Um, so MOD says Roskvardia will likely deploy its new volunteer detachments to Ukraine and Africa. Uh, Roskvardia is reportedly offering volunteers six month contracts for service in Ukraine and nine month contracts for service in Africa. The incorporation of former Wagner assault detachments into Rosvardia's volunteer corps highly likely indicates that Wagner has been successfully subordinated to Rosvardia, increasing the Russian state's command and control over the Wagner group. I was chatting with David earlier on, and this was interesting. You remember at the start of, um, of the full-scale invasion, uh, Russia seemed to be fighting five different wars. There was something happening in the north, in the in the centre, in the south. The air force doing its own thing. Navy wobbling around, you know, looking looking where they were going to be sunk, and none of it was coordinated. 
And then there was an element of coordination through various field commanders brought in, uh, most notably Sorovkin, although, you know, where's Wally? Haven't seen him for a few months. Um, but in recent months, in the last year, I'd say, Russia does seem to have got its doctrinal acting gear um, and they tried to subsume, remember last July, it was the edict from the 1st of July last year that Wagner was going to be subordinated to the MOD. That largely, that was the final straw for, for Prigozhin and, and off, off he went doing his um, uh, Icarus impression. And we think that Russia now has actually got its kind of organisation in a better place, better, very small b, better. It's more doctrinally sound. It doesn't have all these separate groups doing its own thing, fighting their own wars. It does seem... Okay, you might being subsumed into the MOD would not be what Wagner originally was, and they put into the into the Rosfardia units. But it does seem as if Russia has learnt the doctrinal lesson that it needs to get the organisation sorted first. I remember one of my former bosses in the military was um, General Mark Colton Smith, who retired as the uh, head of the Army Chief of the General Staff, and he always used to say, "Get the command and control right first. And then everything else will flow from that. But if you make an absolute dog's breakfast of the command and control, you're just not, it just not—you can't do anything because it, it just doesn't work. So maybe, even if this is the kind of defanging potentially of Wagner, if they've been brought into the Rosfardia and put in those 16th, 17th, oh sorry, and 15th assault detachments, maybe they are moving in the, the right direction for them in terms of getting the organisation straight. But we shall see. Next one. More news breaking in the last hour or so, or, or, or speculation about um, what's happening with General Zaluzny. You remember there's been debate now for the last couple of days as to whether or not President Zelensky has, has sacked him, whether he's resigned, quite what's happening at the top of the tree in Ukraine's armed forces. So Maxim Tucker, who's the assistant foreign editor at The Times, he tweeted about an hour ago, hearing that President Zelensky may publish his decree sacking General Zaluzny later today which would bring the decision into force. Zelensky is apparently concerned by the general's popularity, but doesn't seem to realise how his own popularity will suffer when this happens. And then just a few minutes ago, Oliver Carroll, foreign correspondent for The Economist, said, cryptic message from Telegram, a channel reportedly run by the presidential office. Valery Federovich, that's Zeluzny, you have made a very mature decision. Thank you. Oliver Carroll says, could be games, could be more. But keep your eyes there. Keep your eyes on our website and on social media. Although, just take it with a pinch of salt, social media. Trust our website, I would, about what's happening there with um, with General Zeluzny. Uh, and then coming towards the end of my updates, uh, Ukraine is said to be facing a critical shortage of artillery shells. This is coming from its defence minister. Rustem Merov, speaking to Bloomberg, said Ukraine is only able to fire... 2,000 shells a day, one third of the 6,000 that Russia is getting through. And he said the side with the most ammunition to fight usually wins. I think that's a, yeah, that's fairly self-evident. This comes as the uh, European Union has admitted it will fail to deliver its promise of supplying Ukraine with 1 million artillery shells by March. That target was set for the 12 months up to March this year, 2024. But Joseph Borrell, the EU's chief diplomat, said it could only be met by the end of the year, by the end of 2024. He said, since last March until now, we've already delivered 330,000 ammunition rounds. So one third of the objective, mainly taken from our stockpiles from existing stocks. By March today, I expect this figure will be increased by 200,000 more, thus reaching 524,000. This is a little bit more than 52% of the objective. Right, OK. I say 
Yep. Points there for mathematical accuracy, Mr. Burrell, but uh, nil point for producing the goods. I would also say, why put that news out today? Joe Barnes has been talking about it for some time. He's kept a very beady eye on this. We know it's um, it's been going to happen. They're going to miss their million million target. Why put that news out today, Mr. Burrell? For the answer to that question, let's turn to the Telegraph's own original gangster, straight out of West Brompton. Francis, it's been, probably still is, a very big day in the EU. What can you tell us? <laughs> I think more like straight out of South Norfolk, Dom. Yes, as you allude to there, the big news in the political realm this morning, sound the trumpets, is that $54 billion EU military aid package has finally after all of those delays being agreed. So Charles Michel, President of the European Council, has announced that all 27 member states, including Hungary, voted for the deal in an emergency summit of their leaders in Brussels yesterday. This locks in steadfast, long-term, predictable funding for Ukraine, he said. Zelensky has already hailed the agreement, saying that he was grateful to EU leaders for establishing the Ukraine facility for 2024-2027, saying it is a very important decision made by all 27 leaders, which once again proves strong EU unity. Continued EU financial support for Ukraine will strengthen long-term economic and financial stability, which is no less important than military assistance and sanctions pressure on Russia. Revealingly, This new aid deal for Ukraine includes the option for it to be reviewed in 2026, if needed, according to two EU diplomats speaking to Reuters. That is in addition to the debates which will be held every year on the deal. That suggests to me and many others that that was one of the concessions granted to Viktor Orban in order to get him to agree to the deal. Last night, there was much vocalised frustration coming out of the EU ahead of the emergency summit, not least from Poland's Prime Minister Donald Tusk. Joe Barnes has written this up for the paper, quoting Tusk as saying, There's no problem with so-called Ukraine fatigue. For sure, we have Orban fatigue now in Brussels. We have so many things to solve. I can't accept this very strange egotistic game. There is no room for compromise on our principles. He also suggested there could be political pressure used to force Orban to back the package. The stakes for Budapest, for Viktor Orban, are about being inside the community or outside. Interestingly, Kai Kallis, Estonia's Prime Minister, also warned that Hungary's economy depends on its membership of the EU. She said, echoing that leaked strategy that suggested Brussels could hit Budapest with financial penalties if he didn't fall in line with the bloc's Ukraine support. If you look at the economy of Hungary, the interest rate of their central bank is 9%. That shows how well his economy is going. Hungary needs Europe, so he should also look into what is in it for Hungary being in Europe. I think we can read quite a lot into those remarks about the nature of the conversations that would have taken place behind closed doors. Although, as we talked about last week, I think some of the reporting about that deal was perhaps slightly misleading. I think it was probably written by somebody present as to being a possible hypothesis. But the fact that it was published might suggest it was deliberately published prior to this emergency summit, as Joe talked about last week. Mr. Orban was, we understand, summoned to a emergency meeting with the bloc's most powerful leaders, including Francis Macron and Germany's Schultz. It seems that it was there that the deal was formally finalised before these announcements. So the deals of the concessions from the EU or indeed the concessions from Hungary in response to some of those not so thinly veiled threats, we can only speculate at for now. 
I'm not surprised the EU was keen to get this across the line as soon as possible. Across Europe, tens of thousands of farmers have downed tools, mounted their tractors and taken to the street, which is what Joe's covering at the moment. I remember being in Brussels in 2015 and seeing a very large scale protest from farmers attacking the EU parliament with tractors. Quite extraordinary. And I can imagine that's very much focusing minds at the moment. But I digress. I talked about the energy front in Ukraine last week in the context of Kyiv planning to build several new nuclear power stations in response to losing access to Zaporizhia. Well, it's just worth adding that Ukraine is saying it is now self-sufficient in natural gas for the first time, according to its prime minister. We're going through this heating season using our own gas for the first time in Ukraine's history, he said. We currently have about 10 billion cubic metres of gas in our storage facilities and we're actually making it through this season using only Ukrainian-produced gas. A minor point, perhaps, but yet another example of the self-sufficiency Ukraine is developing in response to this war, just as other countries have. As we've discussed many times... It's these kind of long-term trends one can use as indicative of the real cost of this war from a Russian perspective as nations decouple themselves from Russia's expansive energy orbit. And more on that in my final thought. And just whilst we're on the subject of declining Russian influence, in a story leading to quite a lot of conversations in London here this morning, the former mayor of Sevastopol or Sevastopol, I tend to use the anglicised 19th century pronunciation, in occupied Crimea has been arrested in London. So Dmitry Ovsanovnikova, an ally of Vladimir Putin, was arrested by the National Crime Agency at his home last week on suspicion of sanctions breaches and money laundering. He's since been charged with seven counts of circumventing sanctions and two of money laundering and will appear before Southwark Crown Court on February 20th. He was Russia's former Deputy Minister of Industry and Trade and governed Sevastopol Sevastopol, from 2017 to 2019. He was sanctioned by Britain in 2020 and the EU in 2017 for making public statements in support of the invasion of Crimea. Many are asking what he was still doing in London and the implications of the timing of his arrest now. Much work is being done to clamp down on illicit Russian wealth flooding into the EU and the UK, something we've discussed a lot. And this will no doubt play into that, though frustrations remain about the pace and certain cases which seem not to have been pursued as actively as many believe should be. But we'll be covering that in more detail later this week. So do watch this space. Well, Francis, there's not an awful lot this week left. So I guess you mean tomorrow. But whilst I've got you on this EU deal, uh, I note the Charlemagne common in, column in The Economist this week says, well, they say it would be considered impolite to note that this package, the EU package, is to be spread out over four years and therefore amounts to around 0.08% of the GDP of the union in that period. So I ask you, is it really as good as everyone's saying? That entirely depends on one's point of view on this whole entire package. I think the Ukrainians would say that the big thing that this offers is some economic stability. The crucial word being some, because they are now got a guarantee until 2027 by this package. That means something when up until now, of course, we've been having bills that have been passed and it's giving them, you know, maybe funding for a year, etc., etc. This is providing some long term stability. But the other sum to play in here is the 
as you say, relatively modest amount that is being given to the Ukrainians here. And I think there is still a very, very strong case to be made that it is nowhere near enough versus what the threat is, which is an American withdrawal. Because, of course, if America were to withdraw its support, then this package economically, militarily, would be nowhere near enough to give Ukraine what it needs. I think an important point that has been made here is the timing, as you say, four years. So if we're now talking in four-year chunks, and of course Ukraine needs that, the West needs that for for planning purposes for industry, if you're going to build a new plant to to make 155mm ammunition or tanks or anything, but you need long-term, you need to know the money's going to be there over the long term so you can actually start putting space in the shovels in the ground kind of thing. So yeah, so if this idea of four years becomes fixed and then it's just a question of, well, how much money are you going to tip into that pot of that sort of calendar of four years mixing all the metaphors? That I think is a good thing. You'll note, you'll remember the Estonian plan, 0.25% for NATO members, 0.25% of GDP a year. That also was over four years. So four years now, maybe it might be too soon to say, but I wonder if that's now becoming the currency. If we're we're talking multi-year settlements, whether four years can be grounded in as as the benchmark to be be talked about. Have you heard anyone talking about, in terms of multi-year settlements and funding for Ukraine, have you heard anything other than the immediate here and now? Have you heard anything, anyone else talking about four years or putting any figure at all on multi-year settlements? Not especially. I think, as you say, time is the currency is a good way of thinking about it. Because Ukraine, I think, as we've talked about many times, is now thinking in terms of this year being about acquiring the military produce in order for bigger offensives in 2025. So we are unfortunately now going to have to be thinking about this war in a much longer time frame than many would feel naturally comfortable with, and which I would argue was ever necessary, that if things had been more decisively given much earlier on, we wouldn't be in this situation. But nevertheless, this will provide some reassurance to many. And bear in mind also, this is designed to stabilize markets. You know, Ukraine's economy is fragile, I think it's fair to say. And this provides some assurance that things will be stable enough for a foreseeable period for companies, countries to invest in Ukraine's future. But we should also, I think, recognize this is not the only funding that is going to be accessible to Ukraine. This is basically, I would say, providing the foundation, the long-term foundation of what the EU's intentions are that could then be filled in by other countries giving individually and also NATO giving more money as well. But what we haven't had up until now is that sense of long-term commitment that is essentially in legal foundation. And I think the other interesting thing to play into that is you know how transformative some Ukrainian commentators were talking about the EU-Ukraine deal. What they loved about that, it was talking about a 100-year relationship with Ukraine. UK-Ukraine. Forgive me. UK-Ukraine. Forgive me. UK-Ukraine. They were so pleased that that was the way they think. Because they are thinking now, I think, the Ukrainians in terms of the long-term severance from the Russian orbit and that being a long-term project and that the key thing they need now is having the guarantees from its allies that we, the West, will back them for long enough to ensure that that process takes place. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting if at the moment you've got the Ramstein process of 
delivering and pledging hard military stuff. And then you've got the, um, what's the process that Ben Wallace started, the, the European Finance Initiative. I can't remember the terminology, but it's pledging money, basically. I wonder if now, if in between the two, or maybe an expansion of, of the, the Wallace plan is over multiple years. So people say, right, well, I can't do this year, can't do next year, but we will budget this amount for year three. And someone else says, OK, well, we'll do years two and four. And, and you sort of blob up each bucket that way. Mm, definitely one to watch. Francis, thanks so much. Roland, coming back to you, any more updates, Roland, or any more comments about the um, the ship sinking and the drone warfare that we were speaking about earlier on before uh, before I go to final thoughts? No, no, nothing, 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 nothing particularly to add. I was just going to, uh, a little bit of Telegraph style guide trivia. The Telegraph did not change its official style guide spelling for Sevastopol from Sebastopol with a B until the annexation in 2014. And I know that because I was reporting on it and I was filing copy with a V and it was coming back with a B on it. I said, what's this all about? I said, this is Telegraph style. It's in the style guide. Uh, I said, hold on a second, chaps. And it was modernised. I suppose that probably had been there since the 1850s. <laughs> so, so, hang on. So what happened? So the 1850s, which is basically modern day for the Telegraph. So were they, we... <laughs> Paging Dr. Freud, were we using the wrong spelling, the wrong pronunciation? No, what, just, what, what should we be doing? A, that, we... That, there was a way of transliterating the name of Sebastopol into English, which was with a B, S-E-B, Sebastopol. And the Telegraph happened to hang on to that. I'm not sure there is any particular time. It, it must have that, been from the Crimean War, mustn't it? And then, or even, and then later. It... Or before, so on. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure when it changed, but it, I distinctly remember during the annexation of Crimea, while I was dealing with unmarked Russian soldiers and Kremlin denials and all kinds of other dramas, was this other niggling little thing that my copy <laughs> was spelling the name of the place different to every other publication on the planet. But a little bit of, of, of telegraph history there and a little bit of linguistic history, I suppose, as well. And I imagine from that date, all your expenses were rejected and you had a, a nine-month pain fest trying to say it was the same place, just spelt differently. Anyway, thank you for that, Roland. I will take, unless you tell me otherwise, I will take that as your final thought. <laughs> Francis, to you for final thoughts, please. Thanks. First off, just a quick thank you to everyone who signed up to our live recording of the podcast on the 15th of February at the US Embassy in London. There are a handful of in-person tickets left, but there are unlimited spaces for watching it online. So if you want to do that, everything is free for subscribers, then do please sign up. All information in the description. As for my main final thought, William J. Burns, director of the Central Intelligence Agency, has written a very interesting long read called Spycraft and Statecraft, Transforming the CIA for an Age of Competition. For foreign affairs. It covers all the main theatres in which the CIA is operating, but is especially insightful on the impact of the war on Putin's regime. He writes, it's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth me quoting this bit in full. I have spent much of the past two decades trying to understand the combustible combination of grievance, ambition and insecurity that Putin embodies. One thing I've learned is that it is always a mistake to underestimate his fixation on controlling Ukraine and its choices. Without that control, he believes it is impossible for Russia to be a great power or for him to be a great Russian leader. That tragic and brutish fixation has already brought shame to Russia and exposed its weaknesses, from its one-dimensional economy to its inflated military prowess to its corrupt political system. Putin's war has already been a failure for Russia on many levels. 
His original goal of seizing Kyiv and subjugating Ukraine proves foolish and illusionary. His military has suffered immense damage. At least 315,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded. Two-thirds of Russia's pre-war tank inventory has been destroyed. And Putin's vaunted, decades-long military modernization program has been hollowed out. All this is a direct result of Ukrainian soldiers' valour and skill, backed up by Western support. Meanwhile, Russia's economy is suffering long-term setbacks and the country is sealing its fate as China's economic vassal. Putin's overblown ambitions have backfired in another way too. They have prompted NATO to grow larger and stronger. Although Putin's regressive grip does not seem likely to weaken anytime soon, his war in Ukraine is quietly corroding his power at home. For many in the Russian elite, the question was not so much whether the emperor had no clothes as why he was taking so long to get dressed. The ultimate apostle of payback, Putin eventually settled his score with Prigozhin, who was killed in a suspicious plane crash two months of the day after starting his rebellion. But Prigozhin's biting critique of the lies and military misjudgments at the core of Putin's war and of the corruption at the heart of the Russian political system will not soon disappear. Meanwhile, Disaffection with the war is continuing to gnaw at the Russian leadership and the Russian people beneath the thick surface of state propaganda and regression. That undercurrent of disaffection is creating a once-in-a-generation recruiting opportunity for the CIA. We are not letting it go to waste. Ukraine's challenge is to puncture Putin's arrogance and demonstrate the high cost for Russia of continued conflict, not just by making progress on the front lines, but also by launching deeper strikes behind them and making steady gains in the Black Sea. In this environment, Putin might engage again in nuclear sable rattling, and it would be foolish to dismiss escalatory risks entirely. But it would be equally foolish to be unnecessarily intimidated by them. For the United States to walk away from the conflict at this crucial moment and cut off support to Ukraine would be an open goal of historic proportions. No one is watching the US support for Ukraine more closely than Chinese leaders. So, Dom, a very interesting and important read, which I recommend to listeners. Whilst he's no doubt publishing this in a way that is at least partially designed to rattle the Ruskies, its analysis is hard to disagree with, I think it's fair to say. I imagine it's partially written for sceptical supporters of Ukraine in Congress. And I think we should read into this, it being a very sobering analysis of the consequences too, were America to withdraw its support for Kyiv. So let's just hope Congress are listening. Thanks, Francis. Interesting comment there. We're not letting it go to waste. If possible, I've not seen that uh, that article, but the essay, but if, if we are able to put a link to it in the episode notes, please uh, let's do that. I'll just finish by saying, well, thank you. Thanks, first of all, to a, to a couple of people. Thank you to Warren. Uh, interesting idea. Yeah, if Putin, Putin still has maximalist aims in Ukraine, and therefore, if he thinks he's going to one day own the entire country... Why shouldn't the frozen Russian assets be used now for reconstruction? Because he will inherit the uh, the fruits of that labour. Nice idea, Warren. Let's uh, let's put it to uh, Putin and Viktor Orban. See what happens. Thank you also to Nora. Uh, Nora signed up for the the in person the live recording of Ukraine, the latest February the fifteenth in the U.S. Embassy in here in London. Thank you, Nora. She's actually coming from Vancouver. <laughs> I mean. 
we, we, will, we will work hard. You will not be disappointed, Nora. Thank you so much for, uh, for that pledge of support. There are tickets still available to, uh, to be with us in person. And for subscriber, uh, the, you, know, you need to be a subscriber to get that ticket. Subscribers can also have free access online. It will be live streamed and then it will go out on YouTube afterwards, free to air. But yeah, subscribers, you can watch live or be in the uh, be in the audience. Although if anyone's going to come any further than Vancouver, I will eat Francis's ill-shaped hat. My final thought, I talked the other day about what does air superiority mean anymore in the, uh, in the age of drone warfare. Well, I think we should extend that after events today to sea control. Another sort of doctrinal expression, essentially meaning you can do whatever you like on the big blue wobbly stuff. But has that fundamentally changed? We spoke about it a little bit ourselves earlier on. Be really interested in your thoughts, people who have served in uh, in any Navy, anyone who has any maritime experience, civil or military. What does it mean if you've now got um, this threat, this very real threat from very cheap, very available technology against uh, large capital ships? Be interested in your thoughts there. Thanks, Tom. Last week, I spoke to businessman and entrepreneur Serhi Haidaychuk. Serhi is the founder and president of the CEO Club, a Ukrainian business community in the UK. We spoke about the challenges faced by companies and entrepreneurs in and out of Ukraine. It's a fascinating conversation. Here it is. Let's talk about Ukrainian business in the war. It's a story of survival, but also innovation. What's your take? What have you seen over the past two years? Yeah, of course, we didn't expect, anyone, I think, didn't expect such a full-scale and hot war that happened in Ukraine. So uh, we were not prepared for that. Ukrainian businesses faced dramatic challenges, a lot of different challenges. We didn't expect rockets, bombs, tanks, drones, etc. That is why... I would say that many Ukrainian businesses lost their assets, literally, physically, or part of their operations. It's a first challenge. Second, I think today each of Ukrainian business, from small to big, they contributed, I would say, by their employees because they are serving for army. And there is a lack of employees who can work in business. And this is a very big problem. And there were, and still there are a lot of challenges. Lack of financing, lack of investments, logistics, unpredictability, etc. But despite all that, the Ukrainian business survived. Because we had previously 30 30 years of different crises, we survived through those crises. Uh, that is why we adapted, we transformed our business models, our approaches, and many uh, of the businesses started to invest uh, in new projects, in new products, despite the hot stage of the war. Especially in uh, new technology, you know that any war is also a big driver of technological and innovation changes. And I think most of the Ukrainian businesses started to implement more widely new technologies. Even through the uh, over the last two years, I think dozens, maybe hundreds, of new technologies were invented and implemented and now are successful. 
Of course, it's mostly related to the war, but anyway, uh, the war simultaneously drives all these changes and innovations. Could we talk about the economy and Ukrainian businesses in a sort of geographic sense? How is it rebalancing in Ukraine? I mean, you mentioned destruction of assets, and that's primarily in the east and people relocating and businesses relocating to the west and to the center. Is that something you see? How are businesses managing this? Yeah, of course, not only businesses, but in general, our civilians, they move to the western part of the country, closer to the center, and the businesses as well. And most of the international headquarters and corporations, so they relocated to the western part of the country. Some of Ukrainian businesses already relocated to other countries, and this is not good for our economy. So I think, uh, of course, it uh, affected the structure of Ukrainian economy and logistics. But uh, I wouldn't say that only on the east today is a dangerous place because uh, missiles flying over the country every day and targeting all the cities in the west, uh, in the center, everywhere. So there is no danger, uh, there is no safe place today in Ukraine. How the structure of economy will be looking for in uh, in the future, I don't know, but for sure the balance uh, will be shifting to the West. You spoke about the challenges faced by businesses across the country. What do you think the Ukrainian government should be focusing on in terms of policies to in- encourage economic activity? What more could they do? There is a very big problem uh, today, the problem number one, we can't cross the border. There is very strict rules and uh, a lot of restrictions, so Ukrainian business people can't cross the border. In order to get such a permission, you should spend a lot of time, you should get a lot of papers. I think this is number one. In order to do business, we have to go internationally, we have to participate in conferences, we have to meet face-to-face with our partners. This is number one. I think government should create more reasonable policy how Ukrainian entrepreneurs can cross the board. Second, of course, it's a problem with uh, taxes. On one hand, we need uh, money in our budget in order to finance our army. But on the other hand, uh, businesses today pay triple taxes. First tax we pay to the budget. Second tax we are financing army directly. For example, almost every day we buy something for different army divisions and the units, etc. And third, we have to support our employees and their families who serve the army today. And in order to survive, it would be great if our government reduce uh, taxes. Third, there is uh, a big problem with small businesses. They can't survive without some grants, cheap financing, and we don't have enough funds from our government in order to support small businesses. Fourth, it's a problem of our government, but 
it's a problem of many governments. I think our government should reduce and decrease significantly all these regulations. They should stop to interfere into businesses, but because they do this a lot within the war. And fifth, uh, in order to attract international investments, there is only one way. We have to create some guarantees. And this is also the task of the government. They should attract some international money. They should create some special deals in order to cover all these potential investments with guarantees. Let's talk a little bit more then about international investments. Obviously, companies are wary of investing in Ukraine, a country at war. What arguments do you hear or do you use to persuade people to get involved? Despite the war, we are very optimistic about our future. And we demonstrate it by investing today in our economy and our businesses. Some of our businesses are increasing during the war. But I have five, six arguments why international companies should uh, come to the country within the war, not after the war. First, uh, it's very logical. Who will be first? They will receive significant advantages. Cheaper enter, more objects for investing, a lot of assets that can be buy cheaper, a lower operational costs, there is a time to increase share market, positive image, etc. Second, I think uh, Ukraine will be um, the, in Ukraine we will have the biggest economic game in the Europe, maybe in the world after the Second World too. I think a lot of governments and international institutional companies and organizations will come to Ukraine. And uh, it's, it will affect in order to increase capitalization of the country in general. And so this is attractive economic game. Third, Ukraine today is a f- world-famous uh, brand. And it additionally will attract a lot of businesses, companies, tourists to the country. And it, again, will affect on the capitalization of our assets. Fourth argument, we are going to be part of European Union. We are going to be part of very big global market. And for those companies who uh, are outside of the European market, it's a very good chance to be part also of this big market. Uh, fifth, uh, I said before that despite all the challenges, war stimulates uh, technological and innovation uh, changes. There is a very short period of time when you create an idea, then test your product, then implement this product. Even uh, I invested when the war started in some drone product, and uh, this drone today is very successful and uh, target uh, a lot of Russian tanks. Yeah, it's just uh, two years. Six, and from my point of view, the most important component, uh, which is undervalued, and uh, which is underestimated by uh, Ra- by Putin, by many secret services, it's an emergence of new Ukrainian society. Uh, 
Putin uh, counted that uh, Ukrainian state is quite weak. The institutions work not good and he started this war. But nobody paid attention to the society. Over the last 30 years, new generations uh, came. And these new generations have absolutely different values, experience, worldview. And from the first days of invasion, all those people, there are millions of them, created uh, thousands and dozens of thousands horizontal groups and communities and uh, stopped Russian invasion. And I think this component is a secret component of future Ukrainian success because people and their motivations drives everything. So all these uh, arguments together, I think, create a very good mixture for the um, attractiveness uh, and advantages to come to Ukraine even today. Sohi, you said you're optimistic for the future. So could you give us your best case scenario this year, next year, in terms of the economy? And what do you think needs to happen to, to get to that point? Yeah, I am optimist, uh, but I am realist. This year um, will be very difficult for all of us, not only for the Ukraine, because there are a lot of uh, important events are going to happen. Even, for example, this year we are going to have 70 different elections across the globe, and it can change the landscape significantly. But as for Ukraine, of course, the best scenario is to end the war. Because the more we are in the war, the more damages, the more losses we have. Every day they destroy hundreds of buildings and infrastructure across the country. Every day, the people who left the country two years ago, millions of people, very productive people, the chances uh, they will come back to Ukraine are fewer because most of them have children and those children enter to the schools, universities, etc. That is why for us the best scenario is to finish the war this year, but to finish the war on the terms that are fair for Ukraine. We don't want just to froze the conflict because we will have a bigger war. So we want back our territories. We must punish the Putin and his circles. We must, they must to pay all the damages. We need guarantees from our allies, etc. So the first, the first target is to finish the war on the fair conditions for Ukraine. How to do this in football but or in any sports? You win not because you have a lot of stars in your team, because, but because your team work as a single organism, as a team. The same here. Every day we lose hundreds of thousands of lives of the best people in the country defending borders, or European borders and borders of our civilization. And we 
don't have any doubts and we don't have any other variants. We, we want to survive, we want to have a chance to be humans, etc. Uh, we need uh, unity, we need confidence, but sometimes we don't see this among our partners. They support, uh, today they are doubting, today they want to have compromise with Putin, today they give us weapons, tomorrow not. If we move in this way, we will have war still many years. So we have to be like one single organism. We have to punish Putin because if we will get compromise with him, I think it will be finish of the whole civilized civilized world because the authoritarianism will spread across the globe. Just to finish, Ben Sahi, could you tell us a little bit more about the CEO club that you run? What are you trying to do there? How does it work? Yeah, you know, in Ukraine, it's not about government. I would say our government and our institutions are weak because we inherited them from the uh, post-Soviet Union. That is why in new Ukraine, in new people, in new organizations, in uh, new communities. And we consider ourselves, uh, I mean, CEO Club, it's not just a business community. First of all, we are worrying about the future of our country. That is why one year ago, we founded the branch of our community here in London in order to build bridges between uh, UK and Ukraine. UK is a very important and strategic partner for Ukraine. I think from my point of view, UK is number one because uh, UK supported Ukraine from the first days very confidently, without any doubts. And UK always crossed all the red lines, demonstrated others how we should behave. That is why our strategic goal is to build closer relationships at all levels, at political levels, at cultural levels, at business levels. And we invested in that our time, our energy, our resources. And here in UK, we organize a lot of different events, not only business events, but again, cultural, social, diplomatic events, in order to build these long-term relationships between our countries. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Yeah, I want to just say thank you once again to the British society for its support. It is very important for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. 
And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 